We'll open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. We're continuing in our a series in the book of Genesis, Foundational Truths in Confusing Times. And uh, men, uh, I do this every year. Um, this is your reminder slash warning that Valentine's Day is three days away. I'm sure you have already planned uh, some sort of a elaborate celebration with your, uh, with your wife. But um, just a reminder, <clears throat> the clock is, uh, is ticking. Uh, I remember when, uh, when I proposed uh, to, to my wife, um, uh, when uh, my wife and I met at Camp Minioe up in Port Sydney, uh, Ontario, and that's where we fell in love, and um, so I wanted to propose at Camp Minioe. Unfortunately, the ring was delayed, and the ring wasn't, uh, wasn't ready, and, but I, I couldn't really help myself, and so I ended up uh, proposing there uh, up at Camp Minioe. We were both away on a weekend retreat that weekend, and that's when I proposed to her. Uh, and then uh, uh, the next week, um, we, we were together again. We were both st studying at university, hours apart from one another. And so uh, we, we went to Gerlock Gardens on Lake Ontario in, uh, in Oakville, which is a very special place for us. And that's where I, I got down on my knee and, and, uh, and proposed, to, pr proposed to her. Uh, we were... We were not part of the Instagram uh, generation, so I didn't hire a film crew uh, like most of the young people do now when they, it's this whole big elaborate thing. Uh, and so we didn't post it. The first person who actually found out we were engaged was a police officer uh, because uh, the ride program was in effect in that area. And so as we were driving home to celebrate with Lindsay's parents, uh, we, we got stopped by the ride program and we're, you know, Lindsay's shouting from the passenger side, we just got engaged. She doesn't talk like that. But anyway, Anyway, um, and we're like, trust me, we're just drunk with love. We're like, we're totally sober. We're, we're just, we're just drunk, with, we're drunk with love. But that's, that's our engagement uh, story. Uh, Genesis chapter 24 is a, an engagement story. Um, and it's, we've got our work cut out for us today uh, as we look at this engagement story. Because um, uh, first off, we're going to be looking at 67 verses of Old Testament narrative in one sermon. So buckle up for that. Also, because we're just... This is written in a very different time, and it's a very different culture, and the principles of marriage and commitment and love are all the same, but, but it's very different. Uh, and so, I'm not even joking with you. I want to share with you a draft outline for today's message. I've been working with a group of uh, men, young and old, on how to teach the Bible and coming up with, with outlines. And, and as you're coming up with an outline for a, for a passage, you've got lots of, lots of different ideas. And so this literally was a draft that, that I had for, for an outline. Uh, num point number one, put your hand under my thigh. Uh, point number two, a social experiment involving camel hydration and then a marriage between strangers. Th this, this is what, what we're going to see as we enter into this passage. It's very obscure. It seems very odd to us to, to, to read this story. And when we come to a passage like this, particularly in the Old Testament, that doesn't quite, we, we can't immediately draw an application into our own lives. We can rely on passages of scripture like Romans chapter 15 verse 4, where Paul says, whatever was written in former days, including Genesis 24, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so this is a story that is not, it's, it's, this is not an instruction manual about how to get engaged or how to go about uh, per, the pursuit of marriage. 
But what this story tells us is who God is and how we can hope in him as we are faced with major decisions in our life. So whether you are married or whether you are single, whether you're engaged, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, wherever you find yourself, you need to understand that there is a God that we can hope in. And so I want to share with you three, three truths about who God is that we can find from this passage. Here's the first one. We can have hope because our God has been faithful in the past. We can have hope because our God has been faithful in the past. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham had been blessed. The promise of Genesis chapter 12 had come true. That's where Abraham's story began, and it began with a promise. Leave your land, go to the land that I will show you, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you. It's coming true. God has been faithful to his word. Then verse 2, it says, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So Abraham gets his servant and he tells him, put your hand under my thigh. Now I like to be an interactive preacher every now and again. I like to invite a volunteer up to sort of act out what's happening in the story. But I'm not going to bring up a volunteer for this one, okay? I mean, how, how... what, like, how do you, what, what's, what, can't we just shake hands or fist bump or something like the pinky swear? But again, it's a very different culture. It's a very uh, different time. I don't know what the mechanics, I don't know how all of that worked. This is not something you imagine doing and making an agreement uh, with another man. But that's, that, that's what Abraham says. And then listen carefully to what he says in verse 4. He says, but we'll go to my country and my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. Does that sound familiar? Go, country, kindred. Abraham is remembering. He knows God's been faithful in the past. Abraham was called to go from his country and his kindred. Now he's telling his servant to go to his country and his kindred. That language of God's initial call and promise is the very language that Abraham is using now. He remembers God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 5, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Again, in this story, we're going to be looking at, this is an arranged marriage. And Hollywood uh, depicts arranged marriages as being sort of the opposite of romance, as, as there's, there's love marriages and there's arranged marriages. That's not true. <laughs> arranged marriages can be rooted in love. And in arranged marriage, normally the bride and the groom have a say in the matter. The servant here recognizes, what if the woman doesn't want to go? And so he, he suggests, should I bring Isaac? He says, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? The servant's just trying to be efficient. It's going to take three or four weeks to get there. If, if she says, maybe, but I want to see what, what I'm, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to make this decision sight unseen. I want to lay eyes on this guy. Well, then she's going to have to go three or four weeks back journey and then three or four ba- weeks back with Isaac. He's, the servants, wisely, he wants to be efficient in the matter. But look at how Abraham responds. Verse 6, Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. 
Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I give you this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son, for my son there. Abraham, why is Abraham so confident that the servant is going to be successful? Do you see where his confidence is rooted? He's confident in God. And why is he confident in God? Because he remembers what God has done in his life. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house. Abraham has a long memory. He remembers back to the times in which God had been faithful to him. And based off his understanding of his own testimony and his own history and God's faithfulness to him, he can look forward with faith. And that's all hope is. Hope is faith looking forward. He he can have faith and have hope that the servant is going to be successful on this mission. Loved ones, we as Christians need to have a long memory. And we need to remember stories like Abraham's story. These were written down for our encouragement, for our instruction. And so we need to remember the stories of the Bible and how God has been faithful in the past. But we also need to have a long memory about our, our own lives. And, and, and think about different ways where God has come through for us. It was encouraging for me even to think about my relationship with Lindsay and how God brought her into my life at Camp Minioe, which is also where I met Jesus. Two of my most important relationships started at that place. I met Jesus, my first love, and then I, and then I met the love of my life. I, I met my wife at Camp Minioe. And to think of God's faithfulness to me in, my pa- in the past, fills me with faith as I think about the future. It's healthy for us to to recall times of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. I love that song that that, that we sing, um, you were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. And the song we sang even this morning, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. This, this idea of having a, 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 an understanding that God has been faithful in the past. We can hope in him. And notice how Abraham says, God's going to send an angel. He says, I'm, I'm gonna, he's going to send an angel before you. Now, this would have clicked with the original audience. Because the original audience had this difficult uh, journey that they were about to go on. And they, they, there was a lot of uncertainty. And they had to travel Uh, hundreds of kilometers, just like the servant. And they didn't know how it was all going to turn out as they're going from Egypt to the promised land, the original hearers of the story. And they could remember God was faithful to the servant. And he was successful on his journey. And so we can look back at God's faithfulness in the past and trust him that he's going to look after us in the future. And that that word angel would have clicked with them because God said in in Exodus chapter 23 that I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. But the the servant, again, he's concerned that the woman uh, won't accept the invitation. He won't accept the proposal. Verse 8, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, oh, sorry, this is, Abraham addresses the the servant's concern. He says, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, that's awkward, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. 
Notice, how he, notice this, little, this little aside in verse 8. He says, but if, if your concern comes true, Abraham says, listen, there's no pressure on you, servant. Abraham has this healthy confidence in God, but he doesn't draw a box or a boundary around how God is going to work through this situation. He's confident based off the past that God is going to work this way in the future, but he doesn't back God and his servant into a corner saying, it has to work out this way. Sometimes people who claim to have a lot of faith often get a very narrow focus on what they think the ultimate outcome should be. Notice that Abraham is filled with faith, but he's not rigid. He's open He says, this is how I think it's going to work. I'm confident. God's been faithful to me. Servant, he's going to be faithful to you. You're going to be able to accomplish this task. But if it doesn't work, God's still in control. And God is still good. We need to have that kind of flexibility as we think about walking by faith and living with hope. See, the old Abraham, the old Abraham would have said, but if the woman doesn't listen to you, here's the lie I want you to tell to manipulate the situation, to convince her to come, right? The Genesis 12 Abraham would have done that. The Genesis 16 Abraham would have done that. Even the Genesis 20 Abraham would have done that. But this is the Genesis 24 Abraham. He's growing. He knows that God doesn't need to be helped along in fulfilling his purposes. He's just telling the servant, you do your part and God's going to do his part. And if your part doesn't work out, God is still in control. You don't have to manipulate the situation. So he goes to the city of Nahor, verse 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. Verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. The servant needed to find a bride. So what did the servant do? He went where women are. All right, I want to speak specifically to young men, even older men in our church family right now. If you are looking for a bride, go to where the women are. This shouldn't be that hard, okay? Go to, so listen, our young adults ministry, our 30 plus ministry, the stat, listen, the ratios are in your favor, men. Go to where the women are. Amen, amen. Go to where the women are. It's not that hard. And you know where else the ratios are in your favor, young men? Any men of any age who's looking for a bride is in Hope Kids. There's all kinds of women there. And when they see you down on all fours playing with that little toddler, she's thinking he's going to make a good dad. (laughs) Go to where the women are. And then I love this, uh, so he, go, he goes to the well, and then verse 12, I love this prayer. He said, oh Lord, God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today. Isn't that a great prayer to wake, you know, wake up Monday morning on your way to work or on your way to making lunches for your kids, on your way to doing whatever you're supposed to be doing? Give me success today, God. And then he lays out this, this plan. This is the social experiment. He says, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing at the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. 
Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So he, he creates this sort of social experiment, this test. He sort of lays out this fleece. He says, God, I'm going where the women are. I'm going to say this thing. And I'm going to wait and watch to see if any of the women, when I say this one thing, I'm going to ask, I, I, I'm going to wait and see how she responds. And he sets this up kind of brilliantly. He sets this up to watch for the providence of God. Because he, he wants to hear a certain response. But he's also, he wants, to, he wants to choose a bride for his master who is a woman of virtue. Who is a woman who is kind. Who is hospitable. And, and who is hardworking. So he's looking for God to be working. But he's also looking for a virtuous woman. And, and again, that's what that, that if, whether, you're a, a, whether you're a woman looking for a man, whether you're a man looking for a woman, you want, again, you want to see the hand of God, but you also want to, you want to be pursuing a relationship with someone who is a person of virtue, and you want to be a person of virtue. I, I love that he takes action and he prays. He goes to where the women are, and then he prays for God to move. But he's going to initiate the conversation. He's going to go up to a woman and ask her for the drink. He's going to take the initiative, but he's also going to trust God to work. Some of us are action people. Others of us are prayer people. A prayer person, if you were in this story, you just would have stayed in Canaan and said, well, eventually she's just going to show up. I'm just going to pray hard enough. Or, or the action person is going to say, I made it all the way to the well, and I'm going to go find the right woman now. My friend Ian Hale says, prayer is no substitute for action, and action is no substitute for prayer. We have to take responsibility and do our job, but, we, and, but there, are, there are certain things God is calling us to do, and there are certain other things that only God can do. And so we have to make sure that we're doing both of those. Take action and pray. God has been faithful in the past. Also notice that he asks a very specific request. A very specific request. And I think so often, we don't know whether or not our prayers are being answered is because we don't actually ask with any specificity. Greg Hinzelman, um, who's a, 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 um, a Christian leader that's had a huge influence on my life and Pastor Chris's life and Lisa's life and Lindsay's life, he, he always encourages the people that he's discipling to pray specifically that you won't see answers. If, you ve- if, you, if your prayers are vague, then the answers are going to be vague. Ask specific requests. Our God has been faithful in the past. Secondly, I love this, our God begins answering before we finish asking. Our gods begin answering before we finish Asking. Now, this is a problem like with parenting, right? Because we start to ask our kids to do something and they already start answering and we haven't actually explained what we want them to do or what we want them to explain. And we want them to hear all. God doesn't need that because he's omniscient, right? And he knows what, we're, he knows what we need before we even ask. Before a word is on our tongue, he knows it completely. That's why I love verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Underline it in your Bible. Before he had finished speaking... He's still formulating the words of the prayer in his heart. It says, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out 
with her water jar on her shoulder. Here's this woman. She checks all of the boxes. Again, the original audience would have understood this because they they knew Moses' story. When Moses had told them about the burning bush and how Moses was so reluctant because he wasn't articulate, he wasn't confident in public speaking, and, and he's having this back and forth with God and he's making all of these excuses, and then what does God ultimately say? He says, Moses, your brother Aaron is already on his way to meet you. You're asking me to help you with your inability to speak. And I've already prompted Aaron to start moving in your direction. And he, the answer, God is all, when we pray, God is already starting to answer us. Later generations of the people of God would have heard this from, from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65 verse 24, behold, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. We serve a God who begins answering before we finish asking. So what does he do? Well, verse 16 says, The the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. So, She lets down her jar, let's assume he's cupping it in his hands, and he's like, okay, say something about the camels, right? He's glancing over at the the camels, and and he's, is she going, what's she going to do? Is she going to offer to water the camels? Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, wait for it, I will draw water for your camels also. Until they have finished drinking. This is the specific thing that he was looking for. She is a woman of virtue. And look at how she gets it done. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. How many camels does he have? In verse 10, he's got 10 camels. How much can a camel drink? About 80 to 100 liters. How big was her jar? At at most, 10 liters. I mean... That's a big jar. So even if her jar was 10 liters to to hydrate 10 camels, she would have had to make somewhere between 80 and 100 trips back and forth from the spring, from the well. 10 trips per camel. And she did it quickly. She's a woman of virtue. She's hardworking. She's sacrificial. She's caring. She's loving. Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's, he's sitting there watching. I mean, he's a servant. Like, shouldn't you try and help? Like, what's going on here? But I think there's, there's sort of rules in culture and hospitality. You know, you ever go over to someone's house and you try to get up to do the dishes? They're like, sit down, right? I think that's what's happening here. He's a foreigner. She's trying to show hospitality. And so he's just watching her every move. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. 
Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. He asked a specific prayer. And he got a specific answer. Verse 27, and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on her sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So God has led him in the right way. He's led him this far. He's granted him success. He's answered a specific request. But now the question is, what will the family say? Rebecca seems like the right Woman, she's virtuous. It it seems like God has led her to him. But what will the family say? So he retells the whole story. Verse 34, so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when, when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. So he's, he's setting up Isaac as the sole heir of Abraham's fortune. Verse 37, my master made me swear saying, you shall not uh, take a wife for my son Uh, from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way and you shall take a wife for my son from the clan of my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, if now you are proposing the way that I go, behold, I am stand, sorry, if you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink and who will say to me, drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Verse 45, before I was finished speaking, in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and, and, and drew water. And I said to her, please let me have a drink. Verse 46, she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring in her nose. We would normally put it on her finger, but this is a different culture. Ring in her nose and bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped 
the Lord and bless the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So he retells this story. Again, notice he's fully convinced that God is working. He's fully convinced that God is going to answer his very specific prayer, but he is fully putting zero pressure on Laban and his family. He reiterated the open-handedness of Abraham at the beginning, and now as he's speaking to Laban and Rebekah's family, he's saying, the ball's in your court. I'm trusting that God is in control, but I also know that you need to make an individual decision for what's best for your family. Again, people of faith do not pressure other people. People of faith know what they believe, know how God is working, and they trust that God will work in the details. You don't need to pressure. You don't need to manipulate. Verse 50, how are they going to respond? Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. God is working. He brought brought the servant faithfully to the place he needed to be. He got to the well. He got to to Mesopotamia. And then he brought Rebekah to him. And Rebekah passed the little test that he had set up. And now the family has agreed. He sees God working. And how does he respond? He worships That's the third thing we can learn from the story. We can have hope because the work that God does for us will produce worship for him. That that as we trust God to work in us, it will ultimately result in us worshiping him. And we see going all the way back to verse 26 and then repeated again in verse 48. And it climaxes in verse 52. This servant is continually worshiping God. Every step of the way, he's giving praise and glory to God. And one of the reasons why I love this servant is because he's just like us. He doesn't have a name. There's nothing special or significant about him. We all know Abraham. We know Sarah. We know Isaac. But we don't know this servant. The other thing I like about the this, this servant and what most of us have in common with the servant is that the servant wasn't given any sort of special revelation. He didn't get to see a smoking fire pod and a blazing torch pass through the slaughtered animals on, on, on the day the covenant was made. He didn't hear the voice of God audibly tell him about the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore. He, as far as we know, he had no personal experience of God revealing himself. He was relying on secondhand testimony. He was relying on the witness of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham said these things happened and the servant believed. That's like us. I mean, some of you might have had some sort of a vision or heard God's voice at some point, and we all fit that in the right category, right? Of God, the authority of God's word, and then anything else comes under that. But for the most part, as, as students of the Bible and followers of Jesus, We're following the testimony of people who have had revelation. We're following the testimony of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi. And and, and then we're also following the testimony of those who walked with Jesus. The the disciples of Peter and John and, and Matthew and then the apostle Paul. 
They received the revelation and we, like the servant, we didn't get it firsthand, but we still believe it. And like the servant, we trust God, don't we? And we ask him to give us success. And we can still see, again, again, we might not hear his voice, but we see his hand. We see him answer prayer and steer things, don't we? He's like us. And the other way that he's like us is the fact that he's nameless. Like some people think he's Eliezer, who's mentioned in chapter 15, but he's not given a name here. Because the truth of the matter is, 150 years from now, pretty much, unless like one of us becomes prime minister or something, even if someone becomes prime, who was prime minister 150 years ago? Even those of us who play the most significant role in, in, in histories of, of nations and cultures, 150 years from now, no one is going to remember any of our names. No one's going to know who Adrian Prasad is 150 years from now. No, no one is going to know who Chris Carr is. No one's going to know who Jackie Webb is. 150 years from now, no one's going to know. We're just going to be nameless. But listen, there are no minor, there are no minor characters in God's story. This servant doesn't have a name, but if you take this servant out of the story, you have an Isaac without a Rebekah, which means you don't have a Jacob and an Esau, which means you don't have the 12 sons, which is the 12 tribes, and you don't have the nation of Israel at all. This, there are no minor characters. This, this character is a major character. And listen, you can try to be a major character in your story, and that will guarantee that no one will remember you 150 years from now or ever. But if you are willing to play a major role in God's story... People on earth might not remember you 150 years from now, but in all of eternity, you will have a role to play. A role to play in how you helped your nieces and nephews and pointed them towards Jesus Christ or your grandchildren or how you labored and served in our welcome ministry and bringing people in, making them feel at home or serving with the Pregnancy Care Center or working with Hope Kids or, or helping people using your musical gift to lead people in worship. No, people might not ever know the names but you can still have a role to play that matters. And that's why I think the story, this servant, the story of the servant really speaks to us. So it seems like everything is moving along. They, he, he gives gifts. Verse 53, the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But the plot thickens. They don't want her to go right away. Verse 55, her brother and her mother said, mm, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. There's this, there's this delay Everything's been going along just right. And the servant's probably thinking, well, do I, do I sort of acquiesce? To, you know, what, what's 10 days? And the original audience who know the name Laban, because Jacob is going to go and live with Laban, they know, don't go, don't fall for it. Don't, Laban loves to delay seven years at a time and multiples of them. This is not going to be a 10-day thing. So, he boldly says in verse 56, but the Lord said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. Verse 57, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Again, don't let Hollywood give you the wrong idea about arranged marriages, especially in, in God's word. Rebecca had a choice. 
Verse, verse 58 at the end, she said, I will go. Does that sound familiar? Who she sound like? She sounds like Abraham. And she acts like Abraham too. Remember when the angels came to visit Abraham and he was running around trying to show hospitality to them? And so she ran around to show hospitality. And she has the courage to say, I'm going to leave my country and my kindred and my family and everything that's familiar to me. I will go. This, this is sort of a retelling of the Genesis 12 story. Verse 59, it, she also has this in common with Abraham as well. So they sent away Rebekah and their sister and, and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah. So not only is Rebekah like Abraham and his willingness to go, but she's also receiving a blessing. And the blessing sounds like Abraham's blessing. They say, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 22? Where God said, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Being multiplied like the stars of the sky, sand of the sea. Sounds like thousands of ten thousands. Also, the name of Rebekah is like a play on the Hebrew word for ten thousand, which is Rebabah. And the word for, for uh, blessing, which is Barak. Rebabah Barak. Rebekah. Ten thousand blessings. It, it uh, her name fits this, this blessing, and that's probably why they chose to bless her in that way. Verse 61, then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Leharoi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac, so again, we're, we're 61 verses into the story about a marriage, and we're just being introduced to the groom here. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening in verse 63. So he's, he's thinking, he's praying, he's meditating. He knows that the servant has, has been gone a long time. Three or four weeks there, three or four weeks back. He's, he's waiting a couple of months. God, what are you doing? How are you leading? Is this woman going to love me? Am I going to love her? And then it says, and he lifted up his eyes. And saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And look at verse 64. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. So Isaac lifts up his eyes, sees Rebekah coming from a distance. Rebekah lifts up her eyes and sees Isaac at a distance. They both lift up their eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. That's at least something that sometimes gets practiced in our culture, right? The, the bride wears a, wears a veil. But I, I love how Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just sort of beautifully paints this picture of Isaac lifting up his eyes from way over there and Rebecca lifting up her eyes from way over there, and they both see one another. This is simultaneously a story about an arranged marriage and a story about love at first sight. Lindsay and I, because we were volunteering together at this summer camp, we knew each other for a couple of years before we saw each other. You know what I'm talking about? Love at first sight is like totally overrated. And if that happened for you, I mean, that's great. 
But what normally happens is because it's really hard to observe if someone is actually a person of virtue. You don't want to marry someone who's not a person of virtue. And love at first sight, all you can see is their appearance. And that can be pretty misleading sometimes. You don't just look at appearance. You want to look at the heart. You want to make sure the person is beautiful on the inside and, and attractive to you on the outside. But there, there came a time after Lindsay and I were sort of in the same friend group and serving together, there was a time where I looked at Lindsay, but I didn't look at Lindsay the way that, that I had looked at her up until that point. Do you know what I'm talking about? I always saw her, but I didn't see her. And I don't know what it was like for her, but I think it was the same way. She was better to look at than I was, but anyway. We, we lifted up our eyes and we saw and whether you're just getting to know the person or whether you've known them for a long time, just, just remember to, to really look at someone, to look at their heart. And, and, and it's true for people who are looking for a, a, a life partner. It's also true for those of you who are living with your right partner. Have you, have you stopped looking at them? Have you stopped lifting up your eyes and actually, are, like, they're not your roommate. They're not just a teammate in this impossible, you know, us against them with the kids and the mortgage and everything. Like, they're, they're your spout. They're your husband. They're your wife. Are you, are you lifting up your eyes and are you seeing them? And, and recognizing this is God's gift to me and, and that we belong together. So they lifted up their eyes. Again, I'm probably reading too much into the passages, but it's, it's good advice nonetheless. If you're, if you're not married, maybe you need to take a look at someone who's just right, right around you right now. And if you are married, you need to look at the person who is around you right now because that person is your spouse and they're God's gift to you. And so look them in the eye and love them and thank God for them. Verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Verse 67, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Again, Hollywood sort of paints this picture that there's arranged marriages and there's love marriage, and that's not true. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you, don't, you may not even know it. You're surrounded right now by multiple people in arranged marriages who love each other, but who included their parents in the process of finding a spouse. And they, they had a say. They, didn't have to, they weren't forced to get married against their will. But now they, again, their marriages aren't, aren't perfect. Our marriages aren't, aren't perfect. But we need to understand the, the foundational reality of marriage is not whether or not you're attracted to someone or, or you have certain emotional feelings. It's whether or not the person is a person of virtue and whether or not you understand what it means to be committed, rich or poor, better, worse, sickness, health. Those are absolutely foundational to a healthy marriage. Now, Isaac and Rebecca had a marriage of love, but they still had a lot of difficulty. They, they were infertile for many, many years. And when Rebecca got pregnant, she had an incredibly difficult pregnancy. And then when the children were born, the children actually end up dividing the parents where they showed favoritism to one another and kept secrets from each other. So much so, much so that, that, that one of them had to, had to move abroad, had to move far away. It, it was not a perfect marriage. But we see this bride 
who was found at a well. And again, the original audience would have picked up on this because as the story continues, that son of Isaac and Rebekah, after there was such a division in their family and he had to move away, that son went back into Nahor, back to the same region, and he found himself at a well. And guess what happened at the well? He met his wife. I think a great name for a young adult or a 30-plus ministry would just, just call it the well. Uh, it's a great place. It's a great place to meet. And so the people of God, they're picking up on a bit of a pattern. And they're also, as they're wandering through the wilderness, Moses is walking hand in hand with his wife, Zipporah. And where did Moses meet Zipporah? At a well. So the offspring of Abraham meet their spouses, meet the love of their life at a well. And then there's this other offspring of Abraham who comes to a well. And he's single. And the woman that he meets at the well, she's already in a relationship. And he asks for a drink. And because of like racial, ethnic issues, she's like, why are you asking me this question? And then this offspring of Abraham says, well, you know what? Actually, we should turn the tables. You should be asking me a drink because I have something that you can drink that, that, that will never make you thirsty again. And then she's really confused about what he's talking about. And then he, tells to her, then he tells her, listen, I know you've been married five times. And the one who you're together with right now isn't your husband. And she's shocked because he knows everything about her. She's shocked by the fact that he knows everything about her. But she's doubly shocked because even though he knows her history and knows her sin and knows how she's been sinned against and knows all of her shame and her guilt and her pain, she's doubly shocked, not just because he knows everything, but because he's still willing to be in relationship with her. He doesn't cast her aside. And that, that offspring, for those of you who aren't familiar about who I'm talking about, that offspring of Jesus Christ. And it's a woman from Samaria who he meets at a well. The offspring of Abraham goes to a well, the place where people meet their brides, and look at the kind of bride that Jesus meets. Someone who has been down all of the, all of the, the roads and rabbit trails of this world. Someone who has been broken because of sin. The sin that she's committed and, and no doubt the way that she's been sinned against. You see, fundamentally, every single human being on earth wants to be known. You want to have this sense in which people really understand me, they really know me, and also at the same time, every human being wants to be loved. But because we want to be loved and we want to be accepted, we don't want people to actually know us because we're afraid if they actually knew our past or what was going on in our heart, that they would reject us. And here's this woman at the well and Jesus indicates, I know all about you. And that's initially scary for her, but that Jesus says, but I still love you. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to understand this. You need to understand that God has been faithful in your past. If, if you were just to take some time to recollect different close calls in your life, different people God has brought into your life, maybe the person who invited you to church today, you would be able to say that God has been faithful up until this point. And, and maybe also if, if, if you would just ask him, God, are you real? God, are, are you drawing me into, I, I guarantee you that he will start 
answering your prayer before you even start asking. If you ask, start asking him right now, God, I feel like you're, you're speaking to me. I feel like this is real. He will start to answer that question. And I am telling you that God will do things in your life. He will work for you and in you and through you in such a way that will cause you to worship and to worship him. You see, Jesus knew all about this woman and he suffered and died for her. On the cross, everything that went down with those five previous husbands and the decision to live common law with someone who wasn't her husband, all of the sin, all of the times that she sinned and that she was sinned against, Jesus bore all of those things on the cross and took the penalty so that she could be welcomed into the family of God. And you can make that decision today if you're not a follower of Jesus. You can be rightly related to this amazing God who's been faithful in your past, who hears and answers before you ask and will do things in your life that will blow your mind and cause you to worship. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, don't forget these things. Don't have a short memory. Remember how God has come through for you. Remember how undeserving we are to receive God's goodness and God's grace. Let's bow our heads and and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord, thankful for your faithfulness to us, thankful for your love and for your mercy. God, we pray right now in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, if there is anyone who is here who is not a follower of Jesus, I pray that they would marvel at the fact that you know everything about them, all of their brokenness, all of their sin, and yet you still love them. And that you went to the cross so that they could be forgiven. And so God, I pray that you would save lost souls today. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus for those of us who are Christ followers, for those of us who have received your forgiveness, that we would live lives of grace and lives of faith and lives of hope in the coming days for your glory. Lord, we look to you. We love you. We thank you. You are a faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.